This CIO Talk Radio Viewpoint is brought to you by LexisNexis Litigation Solutions. Welcome to CIO Talk Radio Viewpoints, and here is your host, Sanjog All. Welcome, listeners. Uh, this is Sanjog All, your host, and the topic for today's conversation is, is your discovery data good enough for the court? And I have with me Federal Judge John Fasciola. John is a United States Magistrate Judge with the District of Columbia. Uh, hello, Judge. How are you? Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. And uh, how is life treating you? Very busy? The okay. fall is good for you? Well, I, I, unfortunately, I root for the Washington Nationals, so I'm still in mourning, but I'm slowly and quietly coming out of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. So uh, the topic that we picked up just as a premise, we know that organizations are spending a whole lot on uh, e-discovery, and they always try to go about uh, you know, spending the effort, blood, sweat, tears, and dollars into making sure that they produce as an evidence is is really utilized in the best interest for their cases. Now, some of them or many of them have, uh, you know, mentioned that many times there's a risk of them not being as admissible. Now, question, first question I'd like to ask you is that uh, all the discovery, the e-discovery related effort that is being put in is front loaded and has a sunk cost involved with it. What do you think the corporations can actually proactively do to prevent such sanctions? Well, I think the first thing and the absolute crucial thing to do is to have in place a records management policy. That is, um, we are doomed now by our own machines and that storage capacity keeps getting cheaper and more capacious. So the motivation maybe 30 years ago that storage would cost a lot and therefore you didn't keep things has disappeared. There is unfortunate tendency to keep things. Well, if you keep things and you don't have a record management policy that lets you get at them, and if you insist on keeping things, even though the utility of keeping them has disappeared, you're creating a perfect storm with yourself. You have a mountain of data, and now you are in the process of having to collect it, refine it, produce it, and search it. Um, You're the architect of your own destruction. If you don't have in place a records management policy that helps you do all of those things as efficiently as possible. If you are in that situation and you haven't done those things, well, then you may get the checkbook out because now you're going to have to pay someone, lawyer, vendor, whatever, to do what you should have been doing all along, which is be able to collect and identify what is needed for this particular lawsuit. So in that sense, it's, uh, it's troubling. Now, while you mentioned that there may be cases where people may not have an effective records management system, and on the other hand, corporations must be striving to make sure that at all times they are at the top of their game, are there any specific standard uh, guidelines related to e-discovery related records management, other uh, activities and checks and balances which should be put in place to prevent such sanctions? Well, I, I think that the records management policy that is adopted should have several elements to it. First of all, it's got to be enforced, um, and that is very difficult in, in, in a gigantic uh, organization. You know, Susie keeps everything, Joe doesn't. Um, Martha keeps some stuff and throws some stuff out. Uh, one of them backs up to her own hard drive, the other backs up to the cloud, uh, and it's it's chaotic. So as this is going along, it's not sufficient to simply issue the traditional memorandum that says how you do things. It is to monitor it. It is being done. And if it isn't being done, to correct it uh, immediately and make sure that it is being done. In other words, from a judicial perspective, it is one thing for you to tell me, well, uh, we had a records management policy, and pursuant to that policy, we did X, Y, and Z. 
that is initially better position to be in than to come before me and say, well, we had a records management policy, but not too many people knew about it, and those that did didn't bother complying with it. And that's why we can't find uh, the information you're looking for. That's bleeding with your chin. That's asking for trouble. So what I hear from records managers, the people who are actually doing this, unfortunately, their complaint is I really can't seem to get on management's attention. I'm not a profit center. I don't move the bottom line up and down. And it's very hard for me to um, to get the attention I need and the resources I need to do my job correctly. And the net effect of this is that by default, everything is kept. And as I said before, that's a sure recipe for disaster. Now, when you did mention about uh, the, the structure and uh, some clear guidelines which are to be managed, is it truly black and white or would you say there are shades of gray? Well, I think where we are now, I, I think basically in terms of, of where we are, no one is seriously suggesting, certainly no judge has ever suggested that you have to keep everything. Um, the, the, the point is this, when you are sued or when you have reasonable expectation that you're going to be sued, whatever is in place that might automatically delete or destroy information has to be stopped for at least long enough to identify where this information is and to get it, as it were, offline on a separate depository where it can be retrieved. So that's item number one. So that guideline is inexorable. Uh, the courts are uniform. If there is, you have reason to believe you are going to be sued and you don't turn off automatic deletion systems or you don't make some positive effort to keep the documents that you have reason to believe pertain to this lawsuit, yeah, you're going to get into trouble. Because at that point, if you say to someone like me, well, we just were negligent, that's one possibility. It also could be true that you were up to no good, that you were trying to destroy that information. And once it's concluded that you were trying to destroy that information, the whole structure changes and it makes sanctions much more likely. So what typical technology and processes are you seeing organizations deploy and adopt to help reduce this risk of an inadmissibility? And what do you think people who have done a good job, what's working well there? Well, I, I think that the, the, I don't know, I can't pretend that the next piece of software with these particular bells and whistles is going to do something that the others do. Where we have seen the most dramatic development, certainly in the past couple of years, is in the capacity uh, to search this information using technologically assisted review. That is, to someone like me, I'm 67 years old, and who spent a good chunk of his young career at least turning over pieces of paper in warehouses in the middle of nowhere, that was supposedly the gold standard, you know, eyes on review. It turns out that the people who have studied this have established, I think, beyond anyone's, uh, beyond any reasonable doubt, is that's not only the least efficient way to do it, it is also the, the system that is most likely to lead to errors. Human beings are simply not very good at that. It's a question of patience, tolerance, and a lot of other factors. So now we're seeing a methodology arrive where that is done technologically using the same sort of systems we see in other aspects of our economy. So in the technology-assisted review situation, you have a mountain of data. And maybe 10 years ago, you, you would have used keywords, this word within so many words of that word. A more sophisticated analysis now uses technologically assisted review and the use of our algorithm. So you could, for example, create a document yourself that would be kind like the document you want to see and then have the machine find the documents that are like that and start working and trying to refine the sample set that that produces. Um, while this is complicated, it holds up 
at least great possibilities of being the one way we may have to manage this information and to truly know what we have. It's not so much that you've kept all of this stuff, it's that you've kept up in a way that nobody can really figure out where things are. So in the traditional computer systems that we have on our desk, they may have a search capability, but nothing is half as sophisticated as what's needed. So technologically, assisted review shows up and tries to, to do that, to channel that using the computer's capacity and various methodologies to find stuff. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And let's look at what is typically a court's basis for rejecting e-discovery data as evidence. Are and are these rejections fact-based or discretionary? Let's explore this when we come back. Please stay tuned. Take control of e-discovery with flexible, integrated solutions designed for early data assessment, processing, document review, and litigation presentation. LexisNexis offers comprehensive solutions that work together as well as with other industry-leading tools to help you maintain a seamless chain of custody throughout discovery. Most of these solutions can be offered in a hosted environment with access to fully customizable support resources dedicated to your success. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio Viewpoint. Welcome back. So, uh, Judge, typically, what is the court's basis for rejecting e-discovery data as evidence? And are these rejections fact-based or discretionary? Well, they're fact-based, and indeed, they're based on, in the federal system, certainly on the federal rules of evidence. Basically, as far back as anyone can recall in human history, we've been confronted by the reality. How is this object, how do we know this object is what it purports to be? This is Uncle Harry's will. How do we know it's Uncle Harry's will? Well, that's Uncle Harry's signature, and here are the two witnesses who watched him and who and heard him say, this is my will, and I'm signing it. In a digital world, we can't do that anymore, all right? So we have some information that has been gathered. The courts have been unanimous in concluding, however, that the existing rules of evidence that we've been using for 100 years will suffice, that we can grapple with these issues. That's one school of thought. There is another school of thought that differs with that and argues that the world is so different, the way information is produced is so different, that new rules are required, the old rules won't work well. And that point of view has shown up in a couple of cases, and there's a very famous one called In Re Vieni, I think, involved the bankruptcy court, and the um, question was, what did the creditor owe? And the attorneys for the creditor, I'm sorry, with the debtor, but the attorneys for the creditor should showed up with a data processing sheet said, well, here are his uh, debts. And the judge said, well, how do you know that? What is the source of it? Uh, how did you get this? And where did it come from? And it was a classic example of the court questioning whether or not this particular information was validly produced so you could draw some conclusions for it. We're beginning to see some really fascinating cases involving um, the use of social media and how we can prove that particular postings on a page are what they are. And there's a very famous case in Maryland uh, called the Griffith case. Basically, it involved the contention that when a witness uh, flipped, as they say, that has changed his testimony, it was because he was intimidated by the defendant. A police officer testified that he saw on the defendant's girlfriend's Facebook page um, a notation that the defendant, whose name was Boozy, I guess, Boozy's in jail, and then said, quote, Snitches get stitches, i.e., if you cooperate and with the police, you'll 
you'll get stitches, you'll be hurt. And the question was whether you could get that into evidence against Uzi, the defendant. Uh, the low court held that you could, but the Court of Appeals in, para, in uh, Maryland uh, rejected that and reversed and concluded that there were insufficient indicia that that was truly from this woman's uh, computer and insufficient indicia that he had anything to do with it. So we're now beginning to see the courts confront this reality and we're beginning to have them struggle with how do we know these postings from Facebook pages are what they purport to be. Um, there's been some very interesting research and thought about that. For example, you know as well as I do how easy it is to dummy up a Facebook page, how easy it is to create a website in the name of someone else. There is a famous case you may have read about. There were two young teenage girls who were competing against each other, and the mother of one of them uh, was a very nasty person, and she created a persona. She created a young man who pretended to be interested in the daughter's rival and then sent a message to her that said, I don't want anything to do with you, you're ugly, and whatever. And the next day, that poor kid killed herself. So the cases looked at uh, uh, with uh, people looking at it and saying, you see what we're talking about. You see how easy it was to make that up out of whole cloth, even though we now know that the human being whose Facebook page supposedly was, or whose website it was, I guess, didn't even exist. So that leads people to argue that the traditional ways of doing it are not right. And we should be focusing more scientifically on how information is produced in the world in which we live. Now, given where we are with this unstructured data that you are talking about, maybe text messages, blogs, videos, social media posts, even technology is catching up. So you at your end could have uh, a doubt about whether this was uh, dummied up or was it something which was in reality. And on the other hand, the corporation which may be utilizing social media could also be coming up to speed with how to create a rather reliable audit trail of sorts and or change logs which will make you feel comfortable that, yes, I can allow it to be admitted. That's exactly right. In other words, the, the easy answer in the boozy case, snitches get stitches, was to seize the computer and give it to a forensic scientist who I'm sure could have told us uh, very quickly by looking at the registry or where else that the message did come from that computer and give us the time and the place and all of that. It's when we resort to this secondary evidence where we get into trouble where it may not fit. So I I completely agree with you uh, to produce the information or to have it produced in a way that is scientifically verifiable and to have people ready who are forensic scientists to speak to that issue is one easy, easy way out. In other words, those uh, those of us who think that these rules, these old rules need some refreshing would say that would be a very good example. And uh, we would say that when you think about it, it's actually the cheapest way to do it. It's surely much easier to have a forensic scientist say, yeah, that was posted from this computer at 708 on August 21st, uh, 2008, than it is to try to establish it some other way. Now, if you, if you had the chief information security officers, the general counsel and other business leaders who are essentially in a case and, and or uh, they may... Uh, come across a case where they might be vulnerable, what is your advice to that community, if you will, to make sure that when they do put in the effort and the dollars are indeed spent on the e-discovery, you are creating a higher probability of them getting admitted? Yeah, I think the entire process must, from beginning to end, have that as its focus and goal. In other words, in a in a physical universe, we talk about the chain of custody, right? So the, the prosecutor gets up and offers this gun into evidence. And the question is, how is it 
we, how do we know it was the gun that was taken from the defendant? Well, I've been doing this a very, very long time as a prosecutor myself. What would happen in that case is the police officer scratches his initial in the handle. You can't get better authenticity than that, right? Now, what we have to do is apply the same principles to the production of information. And as we go in the law, as we go along in creating the information and producing the information, how are we creating a link that permits a forensic scientist to go backwards and say, that is unquestionably the data that came from this computer. I've looked at it, the registry, I've looked at the metadata, I've looked at everything else, and I'm certain of that conclusion. With that done, it would seem to me you should be able to go to the other side and quickly get stipulations that these are authentic so we could move on to go to other things. I don't want my trials to spend a lot of time on authenticity questions. That's, that's absurd. We've got a lot of other things to do. So this is the kind of thing I hope will be worked out in advance of trial. And it would seem to me if lawyers on either side or corporations on either side are sophisticated and can establish to each other's satisfaction, that is what, is what it purports to be. We should be able to move on and get over that hump very quickly. And okay. one final question for the, what's your message for the technology solution providers and the organizations that are adopting technology to support uh, admissibility in the court? What is it that you desire them to become so that their products or what they do as a final result is more acceptable? Yeah, I think they want to reject the, 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 any model based on a paper universe and instead create a model that's based on a digital universe. So that as scientists and as people who work, actually work with this data, if they are comfortable, if, a, if the board of directors is comfortable on basing its budget for the next quarter on these projections, then that should be sufficient to satisfy me and other judges that it is what it purports to be. So the point being that if you, as you create this information, you are sensitive to concerns of it being attacked as inauthentic down the line, then you start thinking about chains of custody, about preserving the information behind the data, the metadata, the registry, whatever, that shows where it was and when it came about, uh, that'd be good. Uh, obviously, these vendors in this area, I'm sure they will assure you when they take your business that they will not only produce the information, but produce it in a way where it is usable. I would check, of course, the accuracy of that representation. And if it is true, insist upon that in the contract that we're going to hire Vendor X to do this, but Vendor X has to assure us that when all this is over, the data will be admissible because we will be able to show a chain of custody back to its original source. Once again, thank you so much, uh, Judge, for sharing your thoughts and insights about whether the e-discovery data is good enough for the court or not, and what are the intervention strategies. My pleasure. Thank you once again. And listeners, I invite you to find more conversations like these about e-discovery on our website at www.ciotalkradio.com slash e-discovery. Thank you for listening to CIO Talk Radio Viewpoints. For related programming, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. This CIO Talk Radio Viewpoint was brought to you by LexisNexis Litigation Solutions. 